Hello and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week we interviewed Jerry Saltz on the likes of Gillian Waring, Tracy Emin, Kara Walker and more. And this week for our 100th episode, we speak to Mary Beard on classical women artists. Before we get to this, I'm delighted to say that this episode is supported by Christie's Auction House. The Classic Week auction series continues at Christie's London, celebrating art from antiquity to the 20th century. See history in a new light from the collection of Marvin L. Kolker, valuable books and manuscripts to British and European art. This season's highlights include a rare papyrus of Babylonian lunar theory in Greek, a beautiful copy of Gerard Mercator's 1595 Atlas, alongside a 1577 Portland chart of the Mediterranean, John William Waterhouse's Gather Ye Rosebuds While Ye May, and important works by Gustave Courbet, Dame Laura Knight, and many more. Live and online auctions run until the 15th of December with the pre-sale exhibition now open at 8 King Street in the heart of St. James's District in London. Entry is free and open to the public. Visit christies.com to find out more. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the world's leading cultural commentators and most important voices in classics, Professor Dame Mary Beard. A specialist in Roman history and art, Mary Beard is Professor of Classics at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Newnham College, where she has been since 1984. She is also Professor of Ancient Literature at the Royal Academy, Classics Editor of the TLS and a Fellow of the British Academy and International Member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. One of the most important writers of our age, Mary Beard has written groundbreaking scholarship, books, documentaries and more, such as The Parthenon, Pompeii, Life in a Roman Town, Laughter in Ancient Rome and SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome and more recently Women and Power, A Manifesto and Twelve Caesars, Images of Power from the Ancient World to the Modern, about Roman emperors in Renaissance and later art, two books which shifted my understanding of the perception and role of women in society today and the nature of power in our Western world. And I couldn't be more honoured to have her on for this very special 100th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast. Mary Beard, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Katie, you make me feel very, very busy. I know why I'm tired. (laughs) Well, Mary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it, but also how formative your writing has been for me and so many others. I feel like I've grown up with you and what your books, especially 12 Caesars and Women in Power, showed me was how power and the perception of women in society has been ingrained since ancient times and how over time and only very recently are we starting to see shifts that don't necessarily comply 
to historic perceptions. You have been a huge advocate for women's voices. So I want to start by asking you, why are you drawn to looking at women's stories in the ancient world? I think I'm drawn to looking at stories in the ancient world, that as soon as you open your eyes, you find that they're not all about men. You know, you think about Greek myth or ancient Rome as populated by macho emperors or great brawny heroes. But actually, the ancient world in its own way is really interesting in discussing what the role of women is. It's not our view of what the role of women is, but they're constantly wondering about the dangers of women, the power of women, how you fit women into, in their sense, a male world. And so in some ways, as long as you don't close your eyes to the women, and I think a lot of us were for a long time taught to do that, actually open your eyes and the women are there to be talked about, and they're, they're prominent. Look at Greek tragedy. You never get a more in-your-face set of prominent female characters than Greek tragedy. Now, in some ways, they're being, as it were, processed, put down. In some senses, they're being denigrated, I guess. But my God, they're in your face. i kind of look for what's there. And the women really are there if we're prepared to see them. Totally. But when we also look back at how men have been triumphantly portrayed through classical sculpture, you know, on horseback or right through to the old masters, or even in the present day, and how women have time and time again been seen as the more passive and sexualized human, it is because so much of the time men have also dominated these representations in the ancient and modern world or the media which in a sense allows it to become the default. I mean, looking back on these representations of men, why is it important today that we do focus on the narratives of women and understanding their stories? I mean, I think we have to be a little more canny about thinking what's going on in this apparently, and up to a point truly, misogynist set of representations. I think we have to say, why? Why were these male artists, there are very few female artists in the ancient world, very few female writers, but even fewer actually survive. We have this almost uniformly male view of Greco-Roman antiquity. And it is obviously, inevitably has to be male dominated. But actually, I think what you can see in that is that Men had to speak and represent things very, very loudly and very, very extremely, in a sense, in order to justify their position. I don't think misogyny is easy for men any more than it is for women. I mean, women get a worse deal out of it than men. But my God, men have to go on talking about it, painting it, sculpting it, in order to somehow make it seem natural and true and obvious. So, you know, the whole of Western culture has been partly devoted to making misogyny seem like the way the world should be and is. And I think you can begin just to kind of prod at that if you look at it in a different way. Not saying that men weren't also the beneficiaries of this. Of course they were. But I think the way they drown out cultural representation with ways of 
marginalising, putting down, othering women, shows what a difficult line misogyny is in the end. I think that is such a sort of profound thing to say as well, though, and actually, you know, really hits home to the state of male culture today. And this idea that actually what we do see in our streets are these sort of statues on horseback and these triumphant betrayals. But actually, if anything, it's just so imbalanced across the board. One of the reasons for trying to unpick misogyny, and I I don't think it's top of my list by any means, is that, of course, to undo that centuries, millenniums old way of seeing the world would make life better for everybody. No, misogyny isn't actually nice for men to live in. They are clearly beneficiaries in all kinds of ways, but they're also caught by it and victims of it. And and I often think I look at Greek sculptures, naked sculptures of men, and the idealisation of a particular form of the male body, the aggressive sex pack, the impossibility of the nude male frame as we see it in mm. ancient Greece. And you think, okay, just imagine what it feels like to be a slightly podgy granddad walking through Athens in, <laughs> in 450 BCE. You're caught by this too. Everybody's caught by it. Yeah, I think that's such an important point to raise. But I mean, how have images of women changed from ancient time to the present day, do you think? In some ways, vastly. And I think that the kind of stuff that you've done in looking at female artists and thinking what happens when you start to represent a woman's experience by a woman You know, whole ranges of areas, ideas come up from menstruation to what it is to cook. So it's eye-opening. But of course, you see nothing of that in the ancient world and you see precious little of it up till relatively recently. But I think in some ways what's striking is that nevertheless, those same stereotypes of how women should appear or do appear, have continued. We've added to the repertoire of what it is to see a woman in visual arts. Look at Alison Lapper pregnant, for example, something like that. We've certainly expanded the repertoire of what can be seen and what we can show of women. And I think that something like Alison Lapper pregnant is probably inconceivable before relatively recently. But I think the, the striking thing for me is that so many of the stereotype representations of women survive and continue to got, you know, such a lot of mileage. You know, you look at advertising, you look at celeb photographs, some portraits of women that I see around Cambridge, they're still very much in the familiar mode that has characterised, say, the nude from as far back as the Western nude goes. So I think that... We've widened the repertoire, but we still operate with the visual stereotypes that we've inherited for centuries. Totally. And I'm fascinated, you know, this idea of this idealization of the nude, because, I mean, it all very much stems from Venus. I mean, tell us about Venus, what her initial roles were and how art history has actually interpreted her. Well, I wish we knew, but I think you can start from how we translate what she stands for. I mean, I think we were always brought up to say Venus, the goddess of love. Well, now try saying instead, Venus, the goddess of sex. And then you start to move a bit closer 
to the idea of the power, the difficulty, the edginess, in a sense, the danger of Venus, which we've sort of rather whited out. You find that, especially when you go back to sort of my area of stuff, people go into art museums and art galleries and you walk through the corridors and there's a lineup of Venuses down one side, mostly Roman, and they're mostly doing the same thing, slightly covering themselves up, slightly coy. And they seem very obvious. They're images which seem a bit bland. We don't stop and look at them. We think, oh, yeah, Roman nude, Roman Venus. And we walk on. What we've got to remember is that those images, when they're first made, they are really difficult images. You know, in the history of Greek art, you don't find a full-scale life size until the beginning of the 4th century BCE. By the time you get a life-size female nude, you've had a male nude for 200 years. And suddenly the female nude comes out of the blue. And it's really difficult. We don't actually have the one that was always said to be first, but we have copies and versions of it. And you can see that it's very destabilising. And you know it's destabilising because of the stories told about it. For example, that the sculptor who made it first of all, couldn't find someone to take it, right? So he's made this new, nude goddess of sex and he offers it to one city and they say, no, thank you very much, you know, not having that. You know, he has to kind of give it to the next lot that are prepared to take it. And that already starts to say, you know, there's something problematic here. But the stories that get told about this sculpture are scary stories, actually, even though we treat them as weird anecdotes from ancient Greece. And the one that I like the best is the story of the young man in the city where she was lodged in a temple. And a young man of the city falls in love with her. Well, you know, love, that's already a euphemism, (laughs) isn't it? So in order to really enjoy her, he gets locked into her temple at night so he can have a whole night with her. And of course, you know, he... more euphemism, makes love to her. We know he did because you can see the mark on her back thigh. You can (gasps) see the mark where he... (laughs) And that was, you know, tourists who went to see this statue in the ancient world got shown the mark, right? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And so it's really, you know, a story of this sculpture is so kind of dangerous that it gets a young man to do that. But that's only the first part of it because... What happens next is that in the morning he runs out of the temple, he goes to the nearby cliffs and he throws himself off to his death. So in a sense, the statue also kills him. Now, you say this to people, you tell the story and it's a... (laughs) There are now humorous aspects of this story, but what it's doing is it? Talk about kind of hitting the nail on the head for this image being a dangerous image. You know, how do you process this image? One of the things I think we need to do is to stop taking some of these ancient images quite so much for granted. No, I mean, it's fascinating. And in terms of sort of these narratives and who has been able to dictate the narratives of Venus on everything, 
I mean, women were obviously pretty much illiterate until modern times. And as we know, with artists, you know, shut out from any education or artistic training. But I'm fascinated to know about women artists in the ancient world and where they fit into these narratives. Because you mentioned earlier that there were some and Pliny writes about them in the first century. Who were they and how did they get to become artists? Normally, they were the daughters of artists. Pliny comes up with, I think, six female artists you know, and one work by them. What's very striking is he doesn't know very much about them, although one of his lineup of six, he says, charges a lot of money, um, which is quite encouraging. But they are very clearly, and I think this isn't very surprising, actually, he's normally saying, and they're the daughter of this male artist. So there is a kind of, you know, the daughter takes off to the dad. So it's a sense about inheritance of art and how art is passed down the generations. And none of these survive. Maybe there are some works done by female artists, you know, unsigned. And I think the place where you'd find that most likely is probably on classical Greek painted pottery, because there we imagine that you've got family workshops who are making the pots and painting the pots. And so probably amongst the things that we see unidentified on gallery shelves, there are some that were actually done by women. I mean, my favourite story here, because it does actually kind of put a female artist in some way as the originator of an artistic tradition, is the story about a woman who is effectively the first portrait artist. We don't know her name. Interestingly, we only know her as the daughter of a man called Butades. So she doesn't have her own kind of persona in this. She's her father's daughter and he's a potter. And she has a boyfriend who's going away for a long time. And she's very sad to see him go. And according to various ancient accounts, which Pliny is one, she wants to remember him when he's away. So she gets a candle and casts a light in front of his face so that it casts his shadow onto the wall behind his silhouette. And she then traces around the silhouette on the wall so that she's got the representation of him. And in some ways, that is the first portrait in the ancient world that there ever was. And it, interestingly, It is a portrait which is born out of female passion and desire because she wants to keep the image of the young man. We don't know her name. We only know that she's her dad's daughter. But also what's interesting then is that what dad does is he takes over. And so he makes a ceramic model out of the tracing that the girl has done. What? (laughs) So you're saying that a woman actually invented the way that people are perceived on the coin? Yes. I mean, that is so ancient male writers fantasised. They do it in a way that you think, right, there's a female origin here of the whole art of portraiture. But it's still rather constrained because they don't give her a name. And in the end, dad goes one better. He takes the tracing and makes a ceramic portrait sculpture of the bloke. So I think it is interesting, and it's not a well-known story now, but in the 17th and 18th century, it was a favourite image for artists to do, to capture that moment when the girl is about to lose her lover and uses drawing 
to recapture the presence of the lover. Incredible. I found this amazing panelled painting in Pompeii as well from 50 to 79 AD, a detail from the House of the Surgeon of a woman actually painting a canvas, holding a paintbrush and mixing paint. So it's like, you know, they must have been respected in society. Aya as well. Um, She was singled out by Pliny as saying no one's hand was faster and her artistic skill was such that in prices she obtained, she far outdid the most celebrated painters of the same age. And actually, there's this amazing, and I'll share this in the show notes for the audience, this amazing 15th century, I guess it looks like something from an illuminated manuscript or something, of a woman actually looking at herself uh, painting a self-portrait. And there is a strong line, and I think it kind of goes back to, you know, my sense that Misogyny never closes this stuff off quite. There's a strong line to think that there is artistic agency, but you never quite see it very clearly. You get, in a way, the Plinian fantasy, which is, do you know, she was quicker than anyone else. (laughs) And it partly does kind of allow you to think of female skill, female expertise, female creativity. But when I read that passage of Pliny about these female artists, I partly think, great, you know, here he is, encyclopedic writer. He's going to get everything into his book. And if there's female artists, there's going to be female artists in Pliny's book because he's collecting all the facts he knows, right? Mm. I mean, it's fascinating in the sense that it's all male narratives as well being written. I mean, it's very much similarly with Vasari or something, you know, when we think about women artists, there were so little women scholars. So actually it's in a way self-portraits and these works of art actually how we can see how women wanted to be immortalised. And in some ways, the thing you mentioned about Pompeii takes you more to a standard view because, you know, we now admire Pompeian wall paintings hugely, partly because they're so little of ancient painting it survives that we don't see these panel paintings. I mean, I've been saying, look, we haven't got any of the works of art by Timorete and all these others. But of course, neither do we have the works of art by male portrait artists or male panel painters, because it is the big casualty of ancient art. So, you know, we think of ancient art as terribly dominated by sculpture, but that's because easel painting hasn't survived. So it's not only the women that have that have been casualties here. You, know, you go to you know, fairly ordinary paintings in Pompeii, which are you know partly the equivalent of modern wallpaper. It's what you paint on your walls, not hang in a frame. And you know to see the idea of a woman painting there probably does take you a bit closer to normal assumptions, probably. Well, it's just amazing that they've been immortalised like that because you can imagine the fact that maybe they did have some kind of authority. Mm, Yeah. So we have these examples of women being accomplished artists and even the creator of the first portrait, as you say. Yet when we think about how they've been depicted in the ancient world, it feels almost as if the template is opposite. And in your fantastic manifesto, Women in Power, you write, we have no template for what a powerful woman looks like, except that she looks rather like a man. And the fact that we're still using these Greek idioms to represent the idea of women. And yes, there are powerful female characters in Greek myths, but in real life, ancient women had no formal political rights or independence. I mean, how have women been depicted in the ancient world to today? (laughs) as mothers, as temptresses, as sex objects, and as monsters, (laughs) by and large. You can easily see, go and look at, for example, you know, sculpted Athenian gravestones of women. Now, okay, they come with a particular sort of orthodox 
lot of baggage, the commemoration of the wife. But time after time, you have the seated woman with the baby or with her jewel box, imagine somehow inside, passive, not out in the real world, but enclosed, almost the same, goes for Roman elite women half a millennium later than these Athenian examples. And if you think of all the stories that you read about people like Messalina and Livia, you know, poisoning people, being out on the town, being voracious, you then look at the portraits that we believe to be them, and it's sometimes quite hard to identify them. There isn't really a mode of representing a woman apart from in her position in the family as the vessel through which the male line is going to be transmitted. So all you get which counters that are sort of negative examples. The Gorgon who snaky locks has been punished, actually. You know, how did the Gorgon get these snaky locks? Well, she was punished because she was a rape victim and Athena punishes her for being raped <laughs> in, a, in a nice sort of reversal of what we would think would be the right way of doing things. So you have this monster who just, the female look of them will kill you. And so it's a very binary set of representations. And the Gorgon image, the idea of here is the head of the snaky locks of the Gorgon and you know, happily in the Greek terms, Perseus, the hero in inverted commas, managed to kill her and sever her head, but she will still kill you if you look at her. And I mean, what I think is really striking about that is that it's an image that we still have. And I was really struck that in the Clinton-Trump presidential campaign, there were Trump memorabilia, which showed Trump holding up the head of a gorgon, which had got Clinton's face. And I think what was really surprising about that was two things, really. One was that many people who bought that Trump memorabilia, I think, wouldn't have been able to tell you who the hell this figure was, really. They can see it's got Clinton's face and they can see it's being held up. And But if you said, can you tell me the myth of Perseus and the Gorgon or what the Gorgon does, they probably wouldn't be able to articulate that. But somehow it is so in the cultural DNA that sort of they knew mm. that that kind of image of the severed female head with slaky locks looking at you, people, even if they don't know the story, know the story at some level. And I think the other thing that was very striking about that was the idea that a little bit later, the American comedian Kathy Griffin did a photograph image which reversed that and had her holding up the severed head of Trump. It wasn't exactly a tasteful image, but it was the upshot that was so interestingly different because Kathy Griffin lost her job. She got followed by the FBI. She had problems going through airports. And what I thought was really interesting was that, I mean, you know, neither of these images are pleasant, but you can get away with having on a mouse mat or a fridge magnet Trump holding up the severed head of Clinton, actually based on a famous Renaissance sculpture as well, just to kind of add to it. If you try to reverse the genders and you have a woman holding up the severed head 
of Trump, you end up punished. So there is a kind of way in which we're thinking about how the stereotypes of representation continue, even without people sitting down and thinking, I will do a modern version of this ancient image. We've still got those ancient images as a template in our head, and we still use them to put women down. And we still know that they are about female images and you can't make them about men. There's nothing actually which says that. <laughs> it's just that that template, that stereotype is so strong that it goes through and through and through. I think that there's hardly a powerful female politician who hasn't at some point been represented as a Gorgon or as Medusa the Gorgon. I mean, even Theresa May. <laughs> But I think also what's so fascinating is it's not just the image, but it's actually the behavior as well. It's almost like a template for behavior. You see it in America right now with abortion and everything. The fact of men literally controlling women's bodies, whereas actually if the table turned, it would be a completely different story. It would. And it's about controlling, controlling the way women look. You find that, I think, in some political objections to Islamic dress for women. Yeah. Somehow it is for men to say, you will not wear the hijab. And so what is going on there is something much more than it looks. It's about how male culture will define the limits of acceptability for women's dress. Yeah, it's almost as though that, you know, Perseus holding up Medusa's head or something, it's almost like a sort of template for the world that we live in and actually the acceptance of that as well, which is horrifyingly disturbing. I think it is the acceptance of it because I think it's terribly important that we should notice this stuff. You know, I do not wish to ban or cancel images that show women being exploited or even the subject of male aggression or whatever. I'm not interested in putting them away. I am interested that we notice them. That seems mm. to me the most important thing, because I think otherwise that you can go through a major art gallery and you just don't notice what's going on. And I think in some ways... That's the most important thing. It's not to say, oh, I disapprove of what's happening to that woman, therefore I want that painting removed. I want people actually to notice what's happening to that woman because often they don't. Yeah, it's like there's a debate about, you know, destroying artworks or destroying documents. We need these documents to actually almost deconstruct them to allow us to make sense of the time that we live in now and also to make changes as well. Yeah, you know, the artist Sonia Boyce got into trouble when she did her installation intervention in Manchester a few years ago. And it was only ever meant to be temporary that she took down from being on display Waterhouse's painting of Hylas and the Nymphs, which basically shows an innocent young man being tempted to his death in a murky pool by a group of pubescent women, actually. And Boyce said, let's take it down for a bit. The outcry was absolutely extraordinary. This is feminism gone mad. You know, this is a much-loved painting. And what Boyce said was that what I wanted to do was get people to look at it. And sometimes the only way of getting people to look at it is to remove it just for a bit. And then they notice. Hylas and the Nymphs by Waterhouses. You know, I rather like that painting too. But I sure need my nose rubbed in mm. what it's actually showing us. I think it's 
the way that we've come to accept, just simply take for granted the standard ways in which women are presented and just don't see what hangs on that. I think that is such an important point to make as well, because actually, you know, when we do read the history books or we go to a gallery and we read the little card or something, sometimes they don't really actually say the full story. No. <laughs> well, they never do. <laughs> no, they don't. We're really looking at half the picture. I mean, not just in terms of the gender represented on the gallery walls, but actually just the way in which these stories are told. That's right. And told and retold. And, you know, you get these kind of standard ancient myths, you know, of essentially they're rape. Mm. When I learned them when I was a student, we didn't call them rape, but that's what they are. You know, Jupiter in the form of a bull carries off the young nymph Europa. That is rape. And it always surprises people when you say, and do you know that scene of Europa being carried off by Jupiter? Do you know it's on one of the Greek Euro coins? What? (laughs) Oh my God. And you think... Yeah, because it's come to be Europa and the bull. And Europa, well, she's the origin of Europe, isn't she? Mm. And so you look at it through filters which don't Mm. allow you to see what it's actually depicting. I want people to notice these. And, of course, they do go back to antiquity, and that somehow covers them in a sort of acceptable veneer of, you know, this isn't sexual violence, this is a scene from the classics. Yes, and actually people do, obviously, I mean, I'm an art historian, you're a historian, but in the sense that we do put art on a pedestal, but actually what we should be doing is also deconstructing what is in front of us as well. You know, and opening your eyes to it. And, of course, part of the reason that you don't is that we are kind of acculturated people within our own culture. So in a way, to be a functioning member of our culture, in inverted commas, one of the things is you accept this. That's what it is to be acculturated. If we noticed everything that was unacceptable in the world around us, we'd be very sad. And I think this is where art can help and where art galleries can help, really, that actually finding a space to have a look at some of this stuff and say, bloody hell, that's what it shows, I think is really good. And tell us about Lilith, because she's someone who I only discovered this year and who has kind of become a bit of a hero of mine. She's amazing. I mean, (laughs) I think we're going back to the Jewish tradition. She's either the first wife of Adam, she's a demon, she manages to kind of eat fetuses. I mean, think of every kind of claim that you can make. I love the twists. Uh, It's just very funny. And there's a story about how she, when she slept with Adam, she would always be on top because she didn't want to be dominated by him. Just how bad is that? I love it. In a funny way, I came across Lilith, maybe like you did, through Kiki Smith's modern representation of her. And for me, you know, the more I dug into it, you've got this powerful, mythological, religious, dangerous woman. And she is powerful. You know, she will eat your fetus. You know, she will enchant you. But she's powerful and difficult and dangerous. And generally, you're scared. You're scared if you see Lily. But there is this just amazing sculpture by Kiki Smith, which just manages to make Lilith 
one of us kind of to reappropriate Lilith for our kind of power. And, you know, it's an amazing sculpture. It hangs up on the wall upside down. It has eyes that, as you go to look at it, you know, she's not doing one of these nice sort of nude things, looking away. She is right looking at you in the eye. And although she's naked, because of the way she sort of hangs upside down on the wall and turns her head to look at you, you can't see all the bits that the traditional nude tells you you want to see. You can't actually see her breasts, you know, because they're against the wall. And so it's a wonderful way of subverting the usual way of gazing at these dangerous characters and also these highly sexualized female representations, as it were making an image of absolutely in-your-face female power. And the best thing for me, I think, was when I discovered that she'd actually cast the figure of Lilith from the real body of a real woman. So actually she was saying, okay, this is our object, but this is not like all those Venuses, which are, in a sense, male creations of edginess, of danger. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, I've never been in a million miles of a real woman's body. Here you've got a female artist using a real woman to create an image of female power, which actually reappropriates the danger of this monster, demon, you know, awkward, difficult, but poisonous character in mythology. But I mean, it's fascinating, coming back to what we were saying at the beginning about like, you know, using these kind of out of proportion, idealised nudes for statues and actually having to live up to that. The fact that women artists now are actually using a real body of a woman to actually make it accessible and to make the real body acceptable as well. You can look at yourself, you know, you can look at something which is yourself. It's not a construction of a body that you could never be made so that you're confronted always with images you can't live up to. And, you know, in a way, that's what art does. You know, it destabilises you. It parades to you difference. It isn't quite as simple as some of the discussions you get now about, you know, Instagram images and filters. It's related to that. And I think these images are more complicated than that. But there is about, you know, where do I see myself? When you're talking about Lilith, you know, this idea of using these words like demonic and monster. If anything, what these sort of stories are telling us is that power by women is monstrous and demonic. And has to be put down. And why do we want to sever the head of the Gorgon? Or you go to the Greek Amazons, you know, some of the most common representations of women in ancient art. The warrior women, Amazons, who live on the margins of the Greek world and they throw away the baby boys and they kind of kidnap men in order to impregnate them so they have an entirely female world. And there is a sense in which some people, you know, have more recently kind of thought about that. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, but in the ancient world, they're going to die. The point about seeing the Amazons is that they're going to be killed. The only good Amazons are dead Amazon is the basic message. And so with so many of these things, the power is only seen as part of danger. It just resonates so much to the society that we live in today. 
just with everything going on in the world. But I mean, you end uh, 12 Caesars, that Julio Caesar rule with Cleopatra. I mean, tell us about her and how she's been depicted in art history. Usually she's been depicted in a way to fit the image of the tragic heroine because she kills herself. She becomes safe because she takes her own life. And so most of the representations of Cleopatra show her swooning, usually exposing herself because as she dies, you know, so her breasts are revealed. And in a sense, it's woman finally conquered. You know, she was a dangerous queen, but she's not a dangerous queen any longer. And she is there for us to look at. It's a sense of passion, because in the background is the idea that she's Mark Antony's. She's a woman who is exposed to us, not as an example of power, but as an example of the power of her love for somebody else, her distraughtness, and finally her suicide, which enables her to be gazed at by us when she is utterly no longer dangerous. Wow. One of the works of art that I end with in the book on the Twelve Caesars is a statue of Cleopatra which just upturns that image. It's done by a black female American sculptor, the first professional black woman sculptor in America. Yes, Edmonia Lewis. Who actually is, in the course of her career, absolutely harried by most appalling racism and ends up in Rome and she finally ends up in London where she dies and is buried. But her most famous sculptor is a vast sculpture done for an international exhibition in Chicago at the end of the 19th century of Cleopatra seated. So it's huge, but we know that Cleopatra would have been even bigger if she'd stood up because she's huge even when she's sitting on the chair. But it is utterly disturbing because it's not Cleopatra swooning with the snake on her arm and her breasts about to be or just being revealed to you. She's at the moment of death. It's the death agonies of Cleopatra. And suddenly, just by looking at it, it makes you see what all the others didn't do, what they didn't show you. It is a truly extraordinary sculpture. I think, though, it partly reveals the difficulty of women artists. I mean, it's a very big sculpture and it must have cost enormous amount of money to get from Rome where she did it to Chicago. And after the end of the exhibition in which it was shown, I imagine that she nor anyone else had the money to send it back anywhere. And so it sort of gets abandoned and it spends part of its life on a Chicago racetrack marking the grave of a racehorse called Cleopatra. And you think, talk about, you know, turning this extraordinary work of art into sort of make it entirely banal. And it really was lost for decades. No one recognised it for what it was on the racetrack. And eventually it was rediscovered and is now in the Smithsonian American Art Museum having been rescued. But it's both a fantastic example of a kind of woman's eye and a woman's 
way of seeing that can give you a different version of this heroine who's always boxed in the very familiar way. But we only get it by the skin of our teeth. You know, it could still be on the race course. It gets marginalised partly because it's out of the standard tradition. Now, I think in the end, Edmonia Lewis wins. Now, you know, her Cleopatra is being much talked about. So, you know, finally, it takes a long time. And what do you think you learn from the Greek and Roman goddesses? That the representation of sex and gender is very complicated and that you can never quite pin it down and go back to the idea of, you know, what are these goddesses of? You know, is Venus the goddess of love? Well, yeah, she's the goddess of sex. Yes, she is. But hey, hang on, she's also the ancestor of the Roman race. She's also an image of martial male power. Romans often used to say, okay, what's the name of our city? Roma. What is it backwards? Amor. What does Amor mean? Love. Venus is our goddess. Wow. So she's the goddess of power. She's the ancestor of Julius Caesar. And she is the goddess that might lead you to your death by suicide when you made love to her falling off a cliff. So it's complicated, you know, and I think that a lot of it goes back to the way you know, we were taught at school, I don't know if you had this, but we had lists of the Roman gods and goddesses and the Greek gods and goddesses. And we'd say, you know, the king of the gods, Zeus in Greek, Jupiter in Roman, the goddess of wisdom, Athene or Minerva. Well, actually, these things, you know, they're not even easily pinnable down to whether they're gods or goddesses. You know, the gendering of them for a start is very interesting. And often I think that, you know, we look at images of, Athene or Minerva as the goddess of wisdom. And there she is, she's all dressed in male armour. You know, this is not a kind of standard, straightforward image of female gender. This is a woman dressed in the absolutely quintessential costume of a man. Women do not wear armour. Athena wears armour. So she makes you think. <laughs> Mary, thank you so much. This has just honestly been the most incredible insight. I just want to go and explore everything and, and look, go around museums and just look at all these different representations. But as it says the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could meet an ancient artist or a Greek or Roman goddess, who would it be and what would you say oh, to them? Oh, God, I'd steer clear of them. <laughs> what you wish for, you know. <laughs> Shall I take Praxiteles? <laughs> Supposed sculptor of the first female nude, and ask him what he was what he was trying to do. I think I might not like the answer. I think I'll pass. Wonderful, Mary. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on the podcast today. A pleasure. Bye. Thank you all so much for listening to this very special 100th episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the brilliant. Mary Beard. I mean, what an insight into classical art, but also it was so interesting to hear how perceptions of women have changed in history. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Menelage and research assistant was Viva Ruji. As always, if you have enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll see you next week for the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. <laughs>